You can be seated, and we'll dismiss our kiddos to the back. Follow Miss Robin back there. Well, it's funny when we dismiss the kids, like half of the church gets up and leaves, you know. It's awesome that uh, when we started a church, we had, uh, we had no teenagers, and we have slowly over nine years been growing a youth ministry. Uh, 10 or 12 of those sixth graders joined in this year, and even more to come next year. It's cool to see what they're doing and their focus on discipleship. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, if you brought one with you. We will have some of it on the screen. I do encourage you to bring something with you so you can read and underline. Maybe um, you hear from God in some of the ways I do as I'm reading scripture, that something will just illuminate and grab my heart. And if you have the Bible with you, um, and I'm, I'm kind of old school, I like the papers, and I, I use it on apps too, but just something about just seeing it right here. <clears throat> We've been talking uh, in this little series, ask, asking ourselves the question, what is the church? A lot of times you travel overseas to some of these uh, other countries where the gospel has taken root and the church looks far different than it, than it does here in the West. So what are the irreducible minimums of the church? What does it mean to be a church? Not just what we do on the weekend, not necessarily even the songs we sing or the format or liturgy we follow, but what does it mean to be the church? The church, the representation of Christ on earth to which... Jesus says the gates of hell itself will not prevail. And so we've been talking about some of that, the church. And Ephesians 2, 3, and 4, um, as a whole, if you would read those in one sitting, you would get a kind of pretty good identity of a picture of what the church really is. Parallel passage of 1 Peter 2, we've been spending time in, in both of those. Um, here's what... Uh, the word of God says in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access to one spirit to the fa- in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me, there's something going on here. It's kind of the picture. When I do, uh, when I officiate a wedding... And um, I did one of these a couple weeks ago. I stand in front of uh, the couple, and you know, they're ready. They've been anticipating this date for a long time. and All the details are right, and they're standing in front of me. And I'm reminding them of not necessarily what they are to go do, but who they are. Like there's a mystery, Paul says, in marriage in and of itself, that it reflects the gospel to the world of the church being the bride of Christ, being married, to, um, being married to our groom, Jesus, right? That, we, that, that we're a reflection of Christ to the world, the church is, but also in a more specific way, right? The marriage is like a metaphor for that, for the watching world. And what Paul's going to remind us in Ephesians and what Peter's been doing in, uh, in his first epistle 
has been reminding us that, of that same thing. What the, there's more going on here than us just gathering on a Sunday or us just meeting in groups. We have this picture of the city of God existing within the city of man, this counterculture. The family of God bringing people together who are one strangers, even enemies against each other, and making them family together. But not only that, that as we mature, that we are to become a picture of God to the watching world. And we've talked about this, right, the last couple weeks. We talked at, uh, about this idea of family, and it's mentioned here. We even use this passage, part of the household of God. You've been invited to be part of God's family, and it's good to be part of his family. So Paul is reminding us of our identity as part of God's family. Not strangers, but we're, we're part of the family. One of, one of our favorite uh, things we do as a family, and I've told you this before, is watch America's Funniest Videos. We might be the only people, dorks, that still do that. People are like, have you seen this on Netflix? I'm like, no. Have you seen America's Funniest Videos? We started that when we were kids. Uh, we watch it. The, my favorite, there's really two clips I love, and they show them all the time. But my favorite clip is the one of Christmas. Um, really, my favorite clips are the ones where the weddings go bad. But that's a different story, right? My favorite clip is uh, this, this Christmas. And this guy is walking into the living room. They're like videoing people, like opening gifts. And he's walking in the living room. And he goes in and sits down to realize that it's not his family. Like some random uncle just showed up and walked in. And he gets up and he's like, whoa, and everybody, it's great. Uh, the wrong, this is, the, let's talk about here that uh, if we can make a spiritual connection. Sorry, I've lost it. I'm laughing at that clip. We're members of the household of God that we're not strangers. This is, this is our family. Not just strangers, naturalized and allowed to be in the kingdom, but we're family. And this is a big step much more intimate description he also reminds us here in verse 19 that we're citizens we've been identified as the, in the same nationality of the king in the kingdom of God it was a big thing to have citizenship in Rome and now this is an alternative citizenship of the kingdom of God that our pride is not in being a citizen of Rome our pride is being a citizen in the kingdom of God in other words, you don't have to prove your worth anymore. You have ultimate worth in Jesus. God doesn't look down on you from heaven and consider anyone more important than the other, but we are all citizens in the kingdom. We're all part of his family. And then to introduce kind of this, uh, this new picture is this idea of a temple or building. This physical representation of Christ on earth in verse 20. It says that we've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He's using this language of building in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's so much going on here, but here's the idea, right? The the, the, the most simplest way to put it is we are the representation, the people of God are the re representation of Christ on the earth. We're being 
built together. Now the temple was this really unique place. You know, the temple in the Old Testament started with uh, the tabernacle. We've been talking a lot about that. And then, and then we, uh, Solomon built the temple and tabernacle was placed inside of there. And it was the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women. You could keep going further. The more uh, citizenship and worth that you had, I guess, in, in their eyes. And you could keep going. But to the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was, was separated by this veil you couldn't enter into that. And this is something's changing here. This is what Jesus even forecasted with the woman at the well, that there's coming a time where you won't have to go up the mountain to the temple to encounter God. And this is what Paul's saying. You now are being built together, growing into this holy temple to the Lord. And not our congregation or some edifice of a church building that we might pass by with a steeple, It's the people of God being built together that is the church. Notice it does say built together, not individuals doing our own thing, not even a few of us working together to accomplish the same goal, not only a two-by-four or only a ceiling joist, but when we exist in true community, when we're speaking truth to one another and caring for one another, we are the representation of Christ on earth, not in a building, but a building worth far more together than we are apart. If you go to Home Depot and look at all these two-by-fours and ceiling joists and screws, and if you were to pile all those up, you would look at those and think, man, that is beautiful. There's no Instagram page for building materials, right? But there's a lot of them for beautiful houses. When you put all those things together under under a master craftsman who puts them together and builds them into this beautiful edifice, that's when you stand back and you're just in awe of its beauty. And that is what this is in essence saying, that we are growing into this holy temple, that not, not because of our independence, because of our interdependence. We're being fit together, that God is using us for his purposes. And as he does that, there are things about our lives that begin to change. We begin to conform to the image of Christ. Some things he cuts off. Other things he sands down a little. No house is ever built without a saw or a hammer. This is the work of maturing in our own lives. This is why it's so good for us to be and sit under the teaching and read God's word and let it read us. But because we have this illusion of being independent, we try to do all of these things on our own And we aren't a reflection of this interdependence, of this being built together, this representation of Christ on earth. 21b, verse 21, the second part, kind of talks about this idea of this maturing process. And we touched on that a little bit in our first sermon, that there's a process to this. There's an already but not yet, that we are growing into the holy temple. Yes, we're a representation of him now. And all who've been changed by Christ are that. But there's, there's more going on. It's as we mature, become to look more and more like Christ. The fragrance is more and more attractive. There's a process of maturing in the Christian faith. And let me remind all of us, as we have before, that none of us have arrived. There's no mature Christians in this room. Maturing Christians, yes, but none of us who've reached some kind of pinnacle or plateau where we can stop being transformed into the image of Christ. And again, this isn't entirely individual. It's this context of community that this happens that we're encouraged and we encourage that we're rebuked 
and sometimes provide rebuke and that we are loved and that we love. You flip over, if you will, to 1 Peter 2. And again, these will be on the screen. I want to show you this parallel passage. He used some of the same language. In verse 5, it says, 1 Peter 2, You are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. You'll see how interconnected all these things are. It calls us living stones. We all have a role to play in this. We're all interconnected. And we could look at that and we could talk about all the ways that we're to serve each other and we're to serve the city. We could have a long list and we encourage you to get involved in some of those things. But what I want to spend the time, and I think this passage more reflects, is the kind of culture we create when we're living this kind of life. Look at verse 12 in 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See your good deeds. They're living in a culture that is certainly anti-Christian. Nero is the leader. The persecution of Christians is at an all-time high. He's a little crazy. He's literally impaling Christians on poles and lighting them on fire so they could light up the garden that people are walking, Nero's garden, so they'd have light to see it. And in that kind of context, a vehement culture against Christians, Peter writes, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God. Now, church, let me remind you that as we move more post-Christian, you're going to fit in less and less and you're going to be accused of things you haven't done more and more. And we're seeing this play out already in some ways and we just need to expect it, right? It's just uh, what we talked about last week as a sojourner or the King James uses the word pilgrim. Kind of like that, that we, not, we don't necessarily fit here. But still, Peter's saying that we should live such a life, the good deeds. What are the good deeds that he's talking about that we should have so that God is glorified? The way that we live, right, should be in such a contrast to the way of the world that we begin to shape culture into looking more and more like the kingdom of God. This is the prayer of Jesus when he taught them to pray that God's kingdom would come here as it is in heaven. In the next chapter that we're studying, Ephesians 3, Paul says that the heart of Jesus is expressed to the world through the church. This means that the church at its best gives the world a tangible encounter with what it feels like to be loved by Jesus. When those who don't know Christ come into our homes, we are being grown into this temple. They should feel what it, they should experience what it feels like to be loved by Jesus. When we're inviting people around our table, they should experience what it feels like to be loved by Jesus. When we're working with an, unbe an unbeliever and we're going to lunch or they're watching us work, rubbing shoulders with us, they should experience what it means to be loved by Jesus. That's what this means, that we are growing into a holy temple. That's why I say there's so much more going on than just what happens here on a Sunday morning. This is, this is our, our entire life, our whole life 
as a fragrant offering to God that people could sense and smell and know. Christians literally have the ability to shape culture by living these beautiful, compelling lives. What are these good deeds? It's this idea of an aesthetically pleasing, compelling, beautiful existence. I told you about a, a girl that uh, did some work uh, for the church and designing some things. And she's always reading the gospel because one of our things we're sending her. And she's not a believer, but she's reading all this and she's interacting with us. And on multiple occasions, she asked me about the church. One of these times, she says, you know what? After interacting with uh, different people in our church and leaders of our teams, she says, uh, Luke, I don't believe all the things that you guys believe. But your lives are beautiful. And I kind of step back a little bit, as in, that should be what everyone experiences when they get close to us because we're being molded together, right, into this holy temple. Jesus said that we would be a city on a hill. Imagine before the interstate systems, traveling over the countryside, no real pit stops to make, right? You're out of resources. You're exhausted by the travel, scared about the robbers that may come. And then just over the next hill, you kind of see it in the distance. There's a city on a hill, and you know you're close. It shines brightly against the night sky, and you know that you're almost there. And in the same way, against a dark landscape, of our culture, the church is supposed to shine brightly like a city on a hill. This is what our lives are supposed to be. Now, Christians, we could talk about all the ways this has happened and is happening, but Christians have historically done this in four ways. I want to talk about the four things. First is this idea of compassion. In a cold and aggressive culture, the church has shown great compassion. The Romans had this practice called exposure. And if they had a kid they didn't want, it was the wrong gender, born with some sort of deformity, they would just leave it outside in the elements, in the cold or the heat, and these little ones, these little babies would literally die from exposure. If they didn't die there, they were normally, you know, picked up by someone who would raise them as a slave or prostitute. It was a common practice. Christians were the first group to stand up and speak against that practice, saying that everyone was created in the image of God and should be cared for and respected no matter what. Oftentimes, Christians would gather up these kids. Most all of them had some kind of severe deformity due to failed abortions. And the church, this, this little church, would bring these people in, and they would just bring them up in the front, and they would begin the first adoption processes of its kind, of these people in the church and saying, okay, you know, Here's this little one. Who's going home with him today? Who's going to adopt this one? Compassion. In a cold and aggressive culture, they showed great compassion. We see this even, right? We see this even in Jesus and Peter. What did Peter want to do? Fight. You know, Jesus arrested. He cuts off the guy's ear. Jesus is like, where's the ear? And puts it back on him. Incredible picture and scene. 
But as you read through history and you read through even secular historians, this is where Christians stand out. They showed compassion in an aggressive culture. We could read about all the martyrs that did this. We could look at the different times this happened in history. I'm kind of a history guy, so I love studying and reading this. I actually took a, uh, a class when I was at Louisiana Tech. The history of Rome was led by an atheist um, who had a lot of bad things to say about Christians, but this is the one thing he couldn't say about them, that they weren't compassionate. Christians are the ones that started hospitals. One of the most famous sermons in the fourth century was Gregory of Nicaea, a church father who raised money to take care of people with leprosy. This is one of the lines from his sermon. Lepers have been made in the image of God in the same way you and I have and perhaps preserve that image better than we. Let us take care of Christ while there is still time. Let us minister to Christ's needs. Let us give Christ nourishment. Let us clothe Christ. Let us gather Christ in. Let us show Christ honor. That was the beginning of what would become known as hospitals. The Council of Nicaea, the same one, that affirmed the Nicene Creed, decreed that wherever a church existed or a cathedral existed, there must be a hospital, a place of caring for the sick and poor. By the Middle Ages, there were 37,000 of these. It led to even the emperors of Rome writing into their cabinet saying, why are the Christians doing this way better than we ever could? That's why many of the hospitals today still carry the names of Good Samaritan or Good Shepherd. They were the world's first voluntary charitable institution. And we could go on talking about how these Christians have done this. Another follower of Jesus named Jean-Henri Dunant couldn't stand the sound of soldiers crying in the battlefield. So this Swiss philanthropist devoted his life to helping them in Jesus' name. He started an organization in the 1860s, became known as the Red Cross. Every time you see that Red Cross, you see a thumbprint of Jesus. A Lutheran pastor in Germany named Fliedner trained a group of mostly peasant women to nurse the sick. And this led to a movement of hospitals all over in Europe that inspired a young woman, you may have heard of Florence Nightingale, to give her life to care for the sick. She asked that even after she died, the marker in her grave would be marked with simply a cross with her initials. She wanted to serve with no acclaim. Again, Father Damien, another illustration, a Belgian priest worked in Hawaii in the 19th century created a place where they would care for lepers, they would be loved for and cared for. He would stand up every week and he would tell them, God loves you lepers, until the week that he stood up and said, God loves us lepers. He contracted and died from the disease while serving them. Centuries ago, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, said, it's our care for, of the helpless our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of our opponents. Compassion became the brand of this new religious movement, not because it attracted such wonderful people, but because they understood from their founder that it was not an optional piece of equipment. Compassion in the culture of aggression and coldness let me give you a modern example of this, and there's many of these, but I read this in the New York Times. I thought it was pretty interesting. The article in the New York Times was entitled, Evangelicals a Liberal Can Love. This is what the article says. Look, I don't agree with evangelicals on theology or, their, or, or on their typically conservative views on taxes, health care, or the Middle East. But today, many evangelicals are powerful internationalists and human 
humanitarians. And liberals haven't awakened to their transformation. This is what he said. This is what stuck out to me. In parts of Africa, where bandits and warlords shoot or rape anything that moves, you often find that the only groups still operating are doctors without borders and religious aid workers. Crazy doctors and crazy Christians. In the town of Ruchuru, in war-ravaged Congo, I found starving children, raped widows, and shell-shocked survivors. And there was a determined Christian from Poland, serenely running a church clinic by herself. We can disagree sharply with their politics, this writer says, but to mock them underscores our own ignorance and prejudice. That line, crazy doctors and crazy Christians, it's a line that you see written really throughout history. Compassion against a culture of uh, aggressiveness. That is another thing, is this idea of honor. In a culture of self-centeredness, as we look through history, the church is always seeking to show honor. Again, this is what it says in 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. A few verses later in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. He ends with this, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Romans 12, in his letter there, Paul takes it another level. He says in verse 9, let your love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. In a culture of self-centeredness, the church should show honor. Now, self-centeredness is not a new thing. To strive to outdo one another in showing honor would have been such a wouldn't have been such a crazy thing to see. In Rome, every conceivable aspect of life was used to reflect the race for honor. Everyone claiming and proclaiming how deserving of honor they were. Because everyone was expected to claim their honor, learning to toot your own horn was something you learned at an early age. In Rome, every conceivable aspect of it surrendered around the chase for honor. There was one author, Plutarch, he wrote a self-help book that maybe some of us should read, How to Praise Yourself Inoffensively. <laughs> what a title. I think my kids have read it. Um, a classic example of this genre of writing is the achievements of the divine Augustus, written by Emperor Augustus himself. Inscribed on bronze tablets, copies distributed throughout the empire to show how deserving of honor that he was. He was the most humble person. Here's some excerpts that I wrote down from there. Three times, he says about himself, I triumphed at oration. 21 times I was named emperor. The Senate voted yet more triumphs for me, which I declined because the victories were already getting too many. The Senate voted thanks for me to the immortal gods. 55 times my triumphs, nine kings or their children were led before me as basically as captured. I've been consul 13 times. I was the highest ranking senator for 40 years. I held the office of pontific maximums. All citizens with one accord unceasingly prayed in every holy place for my well-being. This is the leader of the day. 
But in stark contrast to that, Jesus, a poor, homeless carpenter and savior of the world, wrote to his disciples, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be the greatest among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In a culture of self-centeredness, where everything's about me and my glory, Christians are there just deflecting the honor onto other people. It's not about me and my accolades and what I accomplish. It's about you. And how can I honor you? And how can I favor you? How can I serve you? And not just those people who are going to serve you back, but the people who are hard to serve and hard to love. This was the way of Jesus and those who followed him. See, a Christian doesn't try to grab worth through an endless race of achievement, but they receive their worth by grace. A Christian doesn't choose as an ultimate value self-fulfillment, but instead self-giving love. A Christian does not seek glory, but gives glory to a glorious God. A Christian does not impose her will, but surrenders it to God. A Christian does not resent serving, but embraces it with joy. On Jesus' last night, Almost the final moments of his life, he was so concerned for his followers to embrace this idea of humility, of showing others honor, and really living out this idea of showing honor that he acted it out in something like a parable that they would never forget. I don't think I have this on the screen. The passage is in John 13. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. This is his idea of his worth. So he got up from the meal and took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. This is the king of the universe who opened his mouth and out came the sun. Now on his knees washing the feet of his disciples. It's not about what you can do for me, but how can I honor and serve you? This is the result of a transformed life. Don't you love it when you see this in other people? I love it when I see this in my kids, when they defer and give honor. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, it is amazing. My kids are in the stage of when they're, you know, calling what seat in the van they're going to sit in. There's a little fighting about that. I love it when they defer to one another without making a big show about it. So we would, you know, praise their uh, selflessness. Is that supernatural work happening in you? Compassion and honor? Let's keep going. It's this picture of gratitude. In a culture of grumbling and complaining, they showed gratitude and thankfulness. Again, Paul would write to the church at Philippi in chapter 2, he would say in verse 4, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights of the world. In other words, your gratitude and thankfulness is like a megaphone shouting the gospel to the world. 
And we live in a culture that complains about everything. Do we not? Every social media ran us complaining about something, boycotting something. It's just so unattractive. I can, I have like the longest fuse and I can hang out with literally anybody until you start whining and complaining. I just have to shut it down. Like we just, we just can't be around that, right? It's just so unattractive. But in such a stark contrast and to a life that complains about everything, we see the people of God. Psalms 100 says that we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. That's speaking temple language, that we enter to the very presence of God when our hearts and lips are filled with praise and thanksgiving. But when we gripe and complain, we speak the language of the demonic. We quench the Spirit's work and his abiding presence in our life. According to this passage, we dim our lights. No one likes to be around these people. There's nothing beautiful or supernatural about a person who claims to know Christ, that he is their living hope, but all they do is grumble and complain about everything. Church, we can do better. It's crazy to think about, though, isn't it, that our light shine in the world when we have a thankful and gratuitous spirit. The fourth thing, and we don't have much time to spend there, but there was this boldness about the people of God, about inviting people into the way of Christ. As a matter of fact, you read through the book of Acts, every time that it mentions the Holy Spirit and the people and the church being filled with the Holy Spirit, the result was some sort of boldness about inviting people to trust in Christ. Again and again, and we could give multiple illustrations. There was this, like, was this seriousness and this boldness that these people believed that and with such conviction. Now, this is not one of those sermons that's meant to just inspire you and guilt you into doing more. You're writing notes to yourself, be more thankful. This is not a bite your bottom lip and push through it kind of sermon. Again, there's more going on to this. Go back to verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 2. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. Jesus Christ himself being our cornerstone. You know, the cornerstone was the major stone that was set down, right? It had to be so large to support this superstructure. It also had to be so accurate that the walls were all to be conformed to the angle of that stone. Every other block in the entire building fits into that stone. So the cornerstone was the thing that framed everything in which everything else was framed against. It was the thing to which everything else adapted. The cornerstone was the support and the unifier and the connector and the strength giver. It was everything. And for us, church, that is Jesus Christ. Not just our verbal commitment to him, but our life being transformed into his image. 
Without him, there is no house, there is no temple, there is no church. If Jesus is not alive and active, the people gathered there might as well shut the doors. They meet in vain. If we are not careful, this will happen to us, church. This happens to what once were churches all over the world, many of them even in our city. They still meet every Sunday, but they, but in, they meet in vain. The presence of Jesus has been removed. If I can talk to you as your pastor for a minute, that is the thing that scares me the most, that we would do all of this stuff and all of these groups and all the things that we do but miss Jesus, that we would miss the, the heart of it, the discipleship of it, of growing into his image one degree of glory to the next. Quickly, four ways to apply this. How do we take this home? These are four. We're going to go through them really quickly in the next two or three minutes. The first is to yield your will to Jesus. Pray a prayer of surrender every morning. Quick little prayer that I pray every morning that I wake up. Is God my will, my life for your will. My life for your will. C.S. Lewis wrote, I think I have this on the screen, that most of us admit that some morality or decent behavior has a claim on our life. But we hope to cling to our natural life with whatever is left over. So we've got hands in both pots, he's saying. Which means we either live a life of pretense or misery. In the end, you will either give up trying to be good or else you become one of those people, as they say, live for others, but always in a discontented, grumbling way always wondering why other people do not notice it more and are always making a martyr of yourself. And once you've become that, you'll be far, a far greater pest to anyone who has to live with you than if you would have just been selfish. The Christian way is different. It's harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self, all its desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. And I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. It turns out that the good life is only available to the good person. The person who has submitted our lives, yielded our way to Christ. Second way, I think we apply this beautiful lives in the context of community against the backdrop of culture is to remember the depth in which you've been forgiven. When you, re when you realize how much you've been forgiven, you are a forgiving person. Isn't that the parable that Jesus told? Who who's been forgiven much loves much. Many of us have been walking with Christ. We've got this pride thing built up. And let me remind you, church, God opposes the proud. The third way is that we look for opportunities to share what God has done in and through us.
Look for God moving. Look for people who need hope and infuse it. Don't tell them what to do. Remind them who they are. You are God's chosen son or daughter. And finally, don't take the bait. In an opposing world, you're going to be tempted to give in to people that put it in your face all the time. I recently read a story about this pastor who came to faith at an early age. Uh, sorry, as a teenager, at a late age, as a teenager, he was working in a butcher shop. And he said these people loved him when he was, uh, these people loved him when he was not a Christian, but when he became a Christian, they hated him. He's writing this story in this book I'm reading. He said every day he would go to work and these other co-workers who were with him would just say the worst things that you could ever say to someone. Oh, you became a, a priest because you want to take advantage of people. You want to do all these things. They would stick in his face and cuss in front of him and just put it right in front of his nose. He said he would come home oftentimes just so exhausted from not giving in to, the, to their temptation of hitting them or something worse. He worked there for several years. He said the last day of his job, he was about to leave. And this one that was so antagonistic against him said, you know what? I've given you all that I could for all these years trying to get you to give in, to expose that this Christianity thing was not real. But you stuck with it. And because of that, I just want you to know, a couple months ago, I started taking my family to church. My kids had become Christians all because of this one man's influence because he didn't give in. The church is supposed to be this beautiful thing. Instead, in the West, we've made it this competitive thing. I'm not sure exactly what it is. And we repent of that, submit our lives to Jesus and become what he has created the church to do. I'm gonna give you some time to Think through your next step. I'm going to pray for us here in just a minute. In the next chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul puts his prayer in there for the church at Ephesus. And I want to pray this over us before we take communion. Just a minute, we're going to have communion service on both sides and here in the middle. And You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion, but you do have to be part of God's family. Maybe some of you feel like you're on the outside looking in. You don't know what this means to be part of the family and citizens of the kingdom of God, and sojourners in this world, and finally this holy temple. Today I pray, we prayed this morning, a group of us gathered together, we prayed that we would see people lost soul safe today. Someone step across the line of faith. That you would become part of this dwelling place for God by the spirit that Ephesians 2 talks about. Others of you have some besetting sin. If we could be real honest, you call it a struggle. You call it something else, but it's real sin and you know it's sin and God has brought conviction and it's time just to let that thing go, to bring it into the light. As C.S. Lewis says, I don't want just a branch or two. Jesus says, I want to cut that old tree down and give you my life. And today is an invitation for you to repent of your sin, agree with God of its nature, 
and that you would trust him. Let me pray for us. I've asked our communion servers to come. The band's going to come and lead us here in a song in a minute. It's a beautiful passage out of Ephesians 3. I'm going to pray over us. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.